if I told you that we all, right now, today, have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to remake work and focus on social change? Oh, (laughs) I did just tell you that. And I want you to let that sink in. Remake work. You do like the sound of that, don't you? Nonprofit leaders are not short on passion, but they are short on something else. Oh, can I turn my podcast open into an episode of Blue's Clues for a second? I've always wanted to be the host of Blue's Clues. Okay, nonprofit leaders are short on something else. What is it? What'd you say? Patience? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's why you could not sit idly by as a bystander to injustice to those in need. Okay, what else are nonprofit leaders short on? Hmm? Yes, time. And what if I told you that remaking work would offer you, as my guests today call it, the dividend of time? What'd you say? Sign you up? Okay. What else am I hearing? Ah, how? Fair question. Through smart tech. Now, let me be more specific. Through the thoughtful and knowledgeable use of smart technology. This ambitious vision comes to us courtesy of my guests today in their recent piece that tees up their new book. They are wildly optimistic, deeply committed to the work of this sector, and smart as hell. Their vision is hugely ambitious. Let's put it to the test, shall we? Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights today is no exception. Two guests for the price of one podcast. Alison Fine is a social change maker, innovator, and futurist. She is among the nation's preeminent thinkers and strategists for using technology for social good and has written three books on the intersection of tech and social change, including the networked nonprofit with Beth Cantor. Beth Cantor is an author, virtual facilitator, and trainer. She is an internationally recognized thought leader in digital transformation and well-being in the workplace and has more than 35 years of experience providing capacity building for nonprofits and foundations. Beth and Allison are repeat customers here on my podcast. Their passion for the nonprofit sector runs deep, and I've invited them back because they know this audience that educating them, being a champion for each of you, and giving you practical advice that fuels you, in this, they are experts and we are kindred spirits. So, Allison, welcome. Thank you for having me, Joan. It's nice to be back. And Beth, you're back. Yes, I'm back. So great to be here. Excellent. So, Beth, I'm going to start with you. Beth, you're a nonprofit innovator in digital transformation and workplace well-being. Some might see that as an unusual pairing, but clearly you do not. And it is core to the new book that we're talking about today, co-authored by the two of you, called The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered 
in an automated world. I'd love for you to talk about how you landed on a pairing that might not seem obvious to everyone. Great question, Joan. I'm going to, you know, what comes to mind is Fritz Lang's silent movie masterpiece, Metropolis. Do you know that film? I do not. In the 1920s? Okay, so watch it sometime. But it imagine it's a silent film, and it imagines a future where wealthy industrialists reign over the city from the top of skyscrapers while workers underground exhaust themselves and die trying to keep up because they're running these great machines of automation that run the city. And okay, so let me tie it to digital transformation and workplace well-being. So if we think about digital transformation, about leveraging new technologies like smart tech and organizational change, whether that's the way we work or whether it's being more innovative with our program models in a way that adds value for our mission and our stakeholders. So smart tech is really good at doing these rote tasks uh, like intake forms or expense reports, but it's more than just liberating us from this busy work. It can really profoundly change us because of that gift of time that you mentioned. And here's the intersection with well-being. Will nonprofits use that dividend of time to try to get more and more done like those workers underneath the city? Or can we repurpose that time to improve our relationships with donors, with our other external clients and stakeholders, as well as give staff that space to plan, even to dream, to innovate? So I think this is the intersection of digital transformation and well-being. And Another way to put it is with the tagline (laughs) from the movie, which is really about putting humans at the center, not the machines or the tools. And that tagline of Metropolis is the intermediary between the hand and the brain is the heart. So Mm. what we're talking about is approaching this technology that can be highly efficient to be very human-centered and really not, not to invest it back into busyness but to really invest it with that spaciousness of that leads to innovation and doing work differently. And I just want to say something about spaciousness versus busyness, and I think that's really important. I'm learning a lot about the notion that there's work that fuels you and there's work that depletes you, right? And I feel like the kind of work you're talking about that lives in this place called spaciousness is the work that fuels you. That, right, it is the staring at your computer and doing that busy work you describe that depletes you. That's what puts people on the fast pass to burnout. It's not how much work you do, although there's some of that. It's about the kind and quality of the work that you do. And that's really, I think, what you're speaking to here. Right, Beth? Absolutely. And I think also the amount of work is also important too when it leads to burnout. So if this is liberating us, right, to do more quality work, it's also liberating us to take that time off and refuel and have the confidence really to make that change and that it's going to be better. So I was never in a classroom without a crucifix on the wall. And in Catholic school, the nuns would always say that learning definitions to words was just not enough. Just memorizing wasn't it enough. What they'd say is if you use it in a sentence once, it's yours forever. And so I think we should start by kind of leveling the playing field with a little bit of a vocab lesson, because there are a lot of different kinds of words that come up in the book, digitization, automation, algorithms, smart tech. A couple of key definitions of key terms I think will be really great in setting the stage for our conversation today. Thanks, Joan. We really want to make sure that everybody feels 
really comfortable with the language that we're using and that it feels accessible to everybody. So at the big, big level is smart tech. And it's an umbrella term that we made up that includes artificial intelligence and machine learning and all sorts of advanced digital tools like robots even. At the heart of smart tech, we use a baking analogy to explain it to folks. So at the heart of it, computer code are the ingredients and algorithms, a word we hear bandied around all the time, are the recipes and decisions or predictions are the cake. And what makes it run, the fuel for all of that are enormous data sets, more data than you can even imagine. And ultimately, what smart tech does is it makes predictions and decisions that only people could do before. And that's why this generation of tech is so different than everything that came before it, Joan. Because every other generation of technology was retroactive, right? It said this is what, you know, just happened before, or it may work go more quickly, like word processing. This generation of technology is going to say, here are people in our community, we're going to predict, may become homeless next, right? It does work that only people could do before. And that's what makes it so powerful, so science fictiony, so potentially devastating, and so revolutionary. Those are a lot of really differing kinds of adjectives. What I really appreciated, I appreciated many things about your book, but one of the things I really appreciated about your book is that it has sort of a rubric for understanding what smart tech is and how it can be used. And I'd love for you to walk folks through it. You, You sort of talk about inside and outside. I mean, there's just a lot of things you got going on that make it really clear to understand. So I'd wonder if you could kind of give a a good taste of that for folks. So I'll take it on. (laughs) I think what you're referring to is we have a whole chapter devoted to what nonprofit leaders and nonprofits need to think about before they actually get to the doing or grabbing that tool off the shelf and using it. And we've laid it out so it's not too overwhelming or onerous. It's really about uh, taking this uh, human-centered approach that's the sweet spot between people and the smart tech. So let me give you an example. I think an example might bring it to life. Perfect. Um, uh, One of the stories that's one of my favorite in the book is from the Trevor Project. And you probably know their work, Joan, given who you are and the work that you've done. I've done a lot of work with the Trevor Project. Okay. So so you're probably uh, familiar with their crisis counseling to LGBTQ plus people. I am. Yeah. So the way they approached automation in the form of a bot, a chat bot, wasn't to replace the counselors on the front line. But they had this problem, right? The counselors needed to be trained by staff and staff only work so many hours. And there's this overwhelming need, as you well know, how are they going to scale this? I mean, so if they hadn't given the kind of thought that we're recommending, they could have said, let's just put the chatbot on the front line. But that could be dangerous with the type of technology that learns with interactions with other people. So what they decided to do is not put Riley, that's the name of their chatbot, on the front line but actually to use, uh, to create these real life simulations that could help, that a real life 
examples of counseling suicide teens yep. um, to make that a training simulation so that they could train more counselors without and re- less reduced staff time. Because, uh, and probably you know more about, a lot more about this than I do, that there's a lot of nuances that are in this counseling, um, you know, from vocabulary to the type of line of questioning. Absolutely. And, um, and there is a cautionary tale. There is a story a couple of years back, um, Microsoft put a chatbot that was just used the similar type of uh, algorithm that's self-learning. It learns by interacting with others. So they put it out there on Twitter and its name was Tay. And the intention was for Tay to learn how to interact with young people. But of course, they just put it out there on the internet. The trolls got a hold of it, started to harass it. And before you knew it, troll learned how to be a racist, sexist, swearing, insulting, and I'd say harmful bot. And it was taken off in a matter of hours because that's how fast it learned how to do that. Oh my so gosh. going back to Riley, Riley will only be exposed to interactions with highly trained counselors using appropriate language and approaches. So that's the mm-hmm. kind of, and they did a lot of testing and iteration, et cetera, you know, following, you know, this, some of the recommendations we have in Ready, Set, Go. Yeah. So if that, if I could uh, add to that, please, John, because that was such a beautiful description, Beth. We want to be really clear, Joan, that AI and machine learning and the kinds of technologies we call smart tech, right? It's a group of technologies. That's not a product, right? We Smart tech is what we call an equal opportunity disruptor. It's going to be in every part of the organization. It's going to affect every worker, right? From doctors and paralegals to administrative staff by automating parts of their jobs. However, and this is the really important part, we can't see it the way we could see social media, right? You could see on social media if something bad was happening. That's how they knew that Tay needed to be taken down. They watched it on Twitter, spin out of control. But when smart tech is powering the guts of your, say, process of looking for prospecting for new donors or finding stories to share with an audience, When that's the power behind it and you can't see what went into the data, what went into the code, how it was chosen to be used, you can run into some real uh, enormous problems and and problems with what we call embedded bias. So lots and lots of organizations are listening and saying, I probably should be further along on this path than I am. And maybe I'll ask this question to Beth is, what do leaders need to know about leading a smart nonprofit? Maybe we should start with a definition of what, how would, how would you define a smart nonprofit? So we say in the book that smart nonprofits use a disciplined approach to adopting smart tech carefully and strategically mm. while always maintaining the highest ethical standards and responsible use, and that they're human-centered, they're prepared, they're knowledgeable, and reflective. And, you know, I always think about the, one of the nonprofits that we describe in the book as a smart nonprofit. It's uh, the name of it is Talking Points. Uh-huh. And they've created an app that does translation for immigrant parents so they can have a conversation with the teacher or the principal, especially when English isn't their first language. Okay. Uh, and, and we know there's tons of studies that show, you know, parent involvement <laughs> at school leads to better outcomes. And in fact, the founder of this nonprofit is a Korean immigrant herself who landed in the UK, whose mother actually 
uh, as a human, did this for other parents because her mother was fluent in both English and Korean. And that's kind of where she got this idea for the app. So it kind of works like a text messaging app that can translate now 100 languages. It provides closed captioning for a video message when people aren't comfortable with, you know, typing or writing if, if they're not literate. And it enables them to engage with teachers and, and sort of fit it in in their busy days. And so she didn't go out and build this at scale. She tested it yes. <laughs> and did a, inched her way into it. And, and the first iteration of this software was a, basically a spreadsheet and they manually translated <laughs> because there's this, there was this pledge to, you know, do no harm. That's what leaders right. need to know, that this thing, that this tech isn't going to unintentionally cause harm for people because we can't see it. And so one of the things they realized that they couldn't use some of the off-the-shelf translation engines because there's specialized vocabulary, there's cultural nuances that need to be translated, and that they would need to approach it with partial automation and then some human intervention through volunteers that could look at the machine translation and then sort of fine-tune it. And taking this approach of iteration and testing and improving they've been able to scale now up to 20 million users. So that's what we're talking about when we say reflective, knowledgeable, and kind of inching, inching your way towards using this. I I, I think that nonprofits, I, no, I'll, I'll let you jump in in a second, but I just, I am a huge uh, proponent of the idea of piloting and testing to illustrate proof of concept for nonprofits all across the board. There's, for some reason, nonprofits think they have to be all in or not in at all. And I actually think proof of this kind of piloting is great for board buy-in. It's great for funding, all of those things. Allison, you want it in. I just wanted to say um, that there's another story in the book that builds on that, Joan, about uh, from the Best Friends Animal Society Zoe was a chatbot that was created to try to encourage people to adopt black cats, which is hard to do. And they found that the amount of effort it took to try to keep Zoe on track in a, in a useful, constructive way uh, wasn't worth the benefit. So they tested it and actually decided not to scale. So, which I thought was quite brilliant on their part. You know, we juxtapose in the book talking points, the example Beth just, you know, brilliantly outlined with this other assessment called VI Spadat, right? <laughs> she can pronounce it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I read it. I couldn't pronounce it. VI Spadat is how it goes. Thousands and thousands of communities use it to as the entry point for accessing homeless services. And it's been used for 10 years. And there were early red flags that the tool itself was biased. And people kept grabbing it off the shelf because it was free, Joan. It was easy yeah. to use. And yep. a lot of people were using it. So when you say, you know, there's some leaders out there who, who are thinking now I need to get my arms around it. Yes, exactly. However, what we're really concerned about is we're at this inflection point right now where the cost of the technology has come down so far that almost every software package you're going to go out and look for, for say, HR right now is going to have some AI built into it. And you need to be very thoughtful and very careful about not grabbing commercial software that looks, quote, smart because AI is behind the engine 
and all of a sudden you've grabbed something that has bias baked into it or is not human-centered, is doing too much, and you don't have people paying attention to what's going on or is taking you off course. So I want to talk a little bit more about your chapter called Ready, Set, Go, but I, I want to stay with you for a second, Allison, because it's not human-centered, you said. I want to know yeah. what that means. What does that mean? Yeah. And if I'm a nonprofit leader, how do I make sure I'm owning that and guiding that as I think about this work? So this is the very, very heart of what we're trying to communicate in the book, Joan, is the need to hit that sweet spot of making sure that people are doing really deeply human things, building relationships, in charge of processing, accessible to other human beings, the kind of work in the Trevor Project that Beth was talking about, and that the tech is doing what the tech is supposed to do, which is processing lots of data, finding patterns, making sure that 40% of our days aren't sucked up doing administrative work. So in order to be really deeply human, we need to make sure that we are engaging a whole host of stakeholders in the process of creating, you know, of, of implementing a smart tech product, particularly end users. What does it feel like if you're being told to talk to a chatbot to get answers? Will that feel good? Will that feel empowering or will that feel distancing to you to make sure that the solution really meets your strategic needs. We don't want smart tech as window dressing in organizations. It needs to be really important stuff that you're automating. And then as we were talking about before, it's about testing and reflecting and improving and scaling. You know, another example of that, Allison made me think about um, one another story. It's another bot. We, and we don't just talk about bots, but they happen to be one of the more common. I'm going to get you to talk about buses, actually. Yeah, buses soon. <laughs> But but uh, the Zika bot. This is a couple of years yeah. now. Um, but in their first test of it, you know, it was asking questions about people's intimate behaviors, and and they really had to be. They found that their first stab at the kind of the way that the bot responded, the tone and style, people weren't being open and honest. So they had to like iterate on that. So that's an example. You want to talk about buses? <laughs> I I I, don't, I want to I want to save the buses. I I want to talk about I, I want to tag on to what Allison was talking about was the thoughtful and intentional use of smart tech. And maybe because this book is so chock full of stories that really bring these things to life is I want to talk a little bit about practical prep and due diligence. And so either of you can grab this. And, you know, I was thinking about this in my own sphere, recognizing that I'm doing an overhaul of my website and I want to be fully accessible. And I know there are many options that I might have in terms of software that might help myself and my business partner to do that. But there's lots and lots of different kinds of situations bigger than that and different. But you actually are really thoughtful about, you helped me think about how to deal with that just sort of very narrow niche focused issue is how do I know I'm doing the ethical, responsible thing in terms of accessibility? What are the kinds of questions or the preparation, the due diligence that people should do when now that so much of this smart tech is so available to people? So I don't care who takes it. You can both take it if you like. 
Uh, I'll kick off and Allison will chime in. So the ready, set, go framework, just high level overview. Ready is to spend time. Are we solving the right problem? Have we involved stakeholders? You know, what's, what are the end users needs? Are we, you know, are we being human centered? The set is really about, you know, finding the right tools. Is it a good match? And the go is all the testing and iteration that we just talked about. To answer your question, which is sort of in the set area, we, we do have a whole list of kind of basic questions you should be asking of any software vendor. But in your particular case, because it was about accessibility, I think the first thing to ask is whether or not the vendor's values align with your own values. That's one yep. piece of it. Good. And uh, the second piece is to really take a deep dive and understand like what how do they construct this algorithm to make sure that it was compliant with the accessibility standards? And is there potential for misinterpreting this? And in that misinterpretation, could that do some harm? And don't take the vendor's word for it. <laughs> you right. always want to like, kind of like, it's almost like you're hiring someone in a way, you know, find if one, if not two competitors and compare their prices and, you know, what they say about their algorithms, often they're black boxes, they're proprietary. See if you can crack it open a bit and find out a bit about it. My favorite thing to do is to Google the name of the software and the word lawsuit <laughs> or any other negative kind of term, you know, in this case, maybe ableist, <laughs> the name of the software and the word ableist, since it's yeah. for accessibility. Reach out to people who aren't or on their user list, but they don't mention, or people that you found on your own. Research a couple of domain experts. I'm not saying do like hours and hours of interviewing. Like for this one, Disability Rights Fund comes to mind. Totally. And, you know, just totally. do a little bit more due diligence there. Um, and and yeah. everything that you, with the exception of the understand their algorithm, I understood everything else you said. Like, I feel like I might be in the deep end without swimmies if I'm actually talking to somebody and saying, I need to know more about your algorithm because I don't know what it is they'd say that I would actually understand. So here's here's the thing, Joan, in, and in the book, we, we outline this, right? You're not asking, look, these are largely going to be for-profit software companies. Yep. We understand that they have some right to, you know, proprietary software. The questions you as an organizational leader need to ask is about what assumptions were made when they put this product together, right? What did mm. they assume that remember in the beginning when I, uh, I gave that baking uh, analogy, yes. right? Why did they assume that putting these, this computer code together would lead to this cake on the back end, right? right. What, what is right. it that, right? So for instance, uh, if you're looking at smart tech to do the screening for people who are applying for services, let's say it's food services or housing, and as I mentioned before, you need Library of Congress-sized data sets for the smart tech to practice finding patterns. In those two areas, the only place you're going to find enough data are the historic data sets that were wildly racist uh, against Black and brown people. Yes. Right? So you need to ask what data was used to train the algorithms here, right? What assumptions did you make about what you pulled off the shelf to feed uh, into this system. That's why we really consider these issues to be, these are not technical problems. These are fundamental leadership problems for the organization. And we can have organizational leaders saying, smart tech 
is only the purview of the IT guys down at the end of the hallway. Yes, absolutely. Now, you actually quote in the book, with great power comes great responsibility. I think that was that... Is that you or is that Spider-Man? I can't really remember. That's Spider-Man. And we we got to use it too. (laughs) Excellent. I'm actually very impressed that I remembered it was Spider-Man. Yes. That it's important for organizations to understand ethical and responsible use. Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. And that what you just described is a way of operationalizing that for leaders? That's exactly right. And Joan, We really feel very, very strongly that the nonprofit sector would be an amazing place to take the lead on the ethical use of AI and other smart tech, right? Because we don't have a commercial interest in this, Yep. um, but we do have a great programmatic interest in having this go well. And we have choices of, you know, what kind of technology we want to work with. We don't have to just grab the thing off the shelf. Every organization ought to have or have access to uh, an outside ethics committee that is developing the kinds of questions we were just talking about to ask software developers. There's a great story in the book about a software company called Axon, which is a for-profit company, a software company that does facial recognition, builds up facial recognition software. Mm-hmm. And their outside ethical consideration committee decided that that software is not ready for policing yet. And so they did the proactive step of saying, we are not going to make our software available to police departments uh, across the country. Hmm. Anybody who's starting to use smart tech to screen clients, as I was just discussing about, say, food banks or housing organizations, there's nothing more important, I think, right now than making sure they have an ethical committee on, on smart tech. Or maybe it's a Maybe it's a group, maybe it's a city's, you know, group of food banks that has an outside ethics committee. It's not exactly the same analogy, but I work with a number of different independent schools and they don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know about COVID, right? And they, almost all of them have, you know, whether it's the Philadelphia independent schools, they have a medical committee that's providing them with information so that they are, you know, really asking the right questions and making the right choices at their schools. Feels to me like this is a somewhat similar in the sense of tap into those people who know this, this kind of, I I don't think nonprofits often, they think they have their board and they have their limited amount of staff. They have a lot of people who have skin in the game that their organizations yeah. are mm-hmm. successful and they have different right. kinds of skill sets and they're just waiting to be, you know, they're just waiting to be asked to come onto the field, you know? Exactly right. I can't tell you how often I hear, Joan, from people who want to volunteer for an organization of, please give me something substantive to do. I'm sitting right here. I'm really <laughs> smart. And other than asking me for a donation, there are things I can bring to this cause. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a whole different podcast. But the one where you're listening to right now is, a, is about smart tech. And we're talking with Allison Fine, who's a social change maker, innovator, and futurist, and is among the nation's preeminent thinkers and strategists using tech for social good. And we're also talking with Beth Cantor, an author, virtual facilitator, and trainer, 
She is internationally recognized thought leader in digital transformation and well-being in the workplace. Together, this is not their first book, but they have a new book, and it's called The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World. Beth, let's talk about the back office. You have a really good chapter on the back office about how tech can be valuable and its potential for bias in a number of support areas, including recruitment, hiring, performance reviews, talent development. This is really, really important because this is that time-consuming work. And many more nonprofits are looking at outsourcing, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about how can I put this in the hands of someone else? What should nonprofits know about HR automation tools? Well, I think the first thing, if we look at all of the different tool sets that are out there, the different areas, I think HR applications are the, the fastest and most uh, highest rate of adoption across the line in terms of organizations and nonprofits using this particular tool sets. And a lot of them are not that expensive to use. So I, here, we really have to <laughs> really have to have our vigilance around uh, ready, set, go before we just take something off the, uh, off the shelf. So I think, okay, so let's think about, uh, let's break down the different areas. Let's, let's yeah. take recruitment. Okay. Right. And yes. uh, this could be automated from like automatically drafting a job um, description for you to going and analyzing what your hiring practices have been and then coming up with an algorithm for you to help make decisions. And, and ultimately it, it kind of becomes a gatekeeper for your organization. So if you don't have a full understanding of how this software is working and you kind of just accept some of the defaults, like, you know, you want a master's degree in ABC or something, you could be just, again, putting a fence between your organization and people of color. Or you could be screening out an applicant that would be just amazing, but they're a non-traditional applicant. So we have to be really aware about how the different screens work in the HR recruitment and decision-making process, and just not buy into all of the default stuff. The second piece of it area that they're helpful is automating the interviews and any kind of performance tests. That's where a lot of bias is because, and that's where you need to ask, okay, so what's the science or what's the research behind the different skill and personality testing that you're offering in this product? You know, is it racist? Is it biased? So that's an area. Um, there's one that's particularly bad that I hope no one's using it. It's actually based on, and especially we're going to be more apt to use it given um, the pandemic. It's based on racial, rec um, re yeah, racial, that was a facial, <laughs> I should say racial recognition software. And, and that's really biased because it hasn't been tested in enough faces of color. So it right. can't interpret them correctly. So you're going to get into trouble if, if the software has something like that. I already talked about, there's another section of this. It's called bossware. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of this. No. Um, and this can really undermine health and well-being and trust, but it's cameras that are tracking employees' attention, <laughs> you know, their keystrokes or, or whatever. And adoption of these have hastened since the pandemic. And I just think they're bad. And, and they, they really are bad for well-being. They're bad. Wow. For productivity, they're bad for morale, and they're also can be racist. I'm thinking about this is an application in education because students now are, are more remote classes and they're taking their finals. And some universities have been using Bossware to monitor whether there's uh, when the students taking a test online to monitor whether there's movement in the back of them, which might indicate somebody giving them answers. 
But wow. what happened is, is because they didn't take into account that a lot of students of color share, have to share their living situations because of the cost. And yes. so they were automatically flagged for cheating. Yeah. So there's like all, a lot of things you need to be aware of when you start to use these tools for hiring and recruiting. I could go on and on and on. This is the point. Uh, if we can automate key parts of the back office, that's where we get this dividend of time. Yes. Right? It's not just that, right? But that is where, you know, if you automate your expense report, you don't have to spend hours a month filling out your expense report. If you're automating, uh, making time for meetings and you're automating what people could be learning, all of a sudden you will have this time that's freed up to do other things, right? So one of our greatest hopes is you won't just keep doing more of the same, right? You won't just keep emailing out fundraising pitches with the, you know, the sky is falling and pitching five bucks by midnight, but you could actually use that time to pick up the phone and call board members or call clients and find out how people are doing or share stories or ask for ideas or do, you know, problem solve collectively, right? What, there is so much that's possible if we could rethink time in organizations to pivot from being so transactional to being relational. That's the promise of smart tech. So I think, you know, I was thinking about Beth and the recruitment stuff. And if you automate the right pieces of the puzzle, it gives you the opportunity. So you can't automate creative. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm overstating, but Creativity around where I might recruit to ensure that I have a wonderful, rich, diverse pond of applicants, right? That's a conversation I would love to have as a nonprofit leader, as opposed to, oh my gosh, if we don't fill that job, can we please get it on Idealist tomorrow, right? As opposed to, wow, if we got really creative, about how to fill this job, where might we recruit? And that's the things, like there's, it's not even just like generative thinking about what's possible in five years. It's like the thing that's right in front of you, which is slow down, get the dividend of time back so I can have a creative conversation and actually really think innovatively about how to recruit for positions so I'm bringing new people to the sector with new ideas, with lived experience in the, in the fields in which I work. Like that's, you know, you don't have to get all like crazy visionary, but you can get wildly creative about getting right people on the bus. And my gosh, is there anything that that's actually, that's kind of step one in building a really thriving organization. Yeah. And Joan, you just, you just nailed it because we have to hold the vision and the promise and the benefits, but not wear rose colored glasses <laughs> and not ignore you know, the potential harms and the highest standards of ethical use, but not be afraid of that. We need to also embrace that as well. And I know maybe we tend to uh, kind of be a little bit scared. <laughs> maybe maybe our language is not right. Uh, we had to work a lot about that uh, on that in the book because and we and Alice and I had lots and lots of discussions about we don't want to scare people away from the use of this technology because there is that amazing promise, but we really have to be somewhere in the middle between indifference and complete dismay, you know, yeah. and 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 just see what that vision is and make those changes. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. 
Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So I want to ask each of you this question, and then I have one final question that I'm happy to have you both weigh in on. So there are many inspiring examples. It is one of the things I really love about your book is that, no, I mean, yeah, there's definitely stuff about bots, but that, but it is about so many diverse kinds of applications. And I just wonder, I'll go to Allison for you first, a story that's like you heard it and you just thought, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. These people are picking up what I'm putting down here. Like mm-hmm. this is inspiring. Like this is what I'm talking about. Is there, uh, I, I want to ask each of you if there's a story that I'm sure there's a couple, but if there's one that you want to pick out to tell everybody about that I think would, would really help people un- really understand and also sort of get a sense of why you do this work. Uh, she, uh, <laughs> I have one. <laughs> you start, I'll think. Okay. Um, because we've said so many. Yeah, I know. Uh, I was yeah. the one I want to talk about the buses since you said stop talking okay. about, ah, buses, the talk buses. about buses. <laughs> I think it was the most inspiring one that at least I, I read about that I got really excited while we were researching the book. And, and this was, it happened, we got the book contract right when it, uh, the, the world closed off. I think it was like March 12th, we got our book contract and then the pandemic hit. And um, so the, a lot of stories we looked at were, you know, this kind of you, turning to smart tech because of the pandemic. And uh, one of them was from a food bank and it, and they worked with uh, researchers at Carnegie Mellon. And that one of the problems that happened is that kids were getting free lunches through schools, but the schools were shut down. How are they how are they getting the food? So what they did is they used an algorithm to analyze the bus routes and reverse the bus routes so the, the, the buses could bring the food to the kids, which I just thought was so innovative. Right. Mm. Mm. Right. It just, you, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, that's just so smart, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Well, we yep. saw during the pandemic, Joan, we saw and robots really take off for the first time, right? Out of necessity. So there were food banks that were using robots to pack Thanksgiving dinners for people. And it's a two-parter for me, right? It is the first part of, yes, using the technology for good in that moment was brilliant, right? And, and you've got the robots packing dinners at you know, a pace people can't do. But then the second part of the equation, Joan, which is gonna start to come up in the next few months is now that volunteers aren't necessarily needed yes. to right, put the cans on the shelf or pack the lunch, what could they do, right? right. What's possible? now in those human engagements that could perhaps help somebody who's lonely, help somebody who's hungry, right? That you could make possible now that the robots are putting the cans on the shelves. And that's really exciting to me. It is really exciting. So final question, looking to the future, you talk about us being sort of at the heel of the hockey stick. Where's it all going? What should the people who are listening to this podcast care about, 
think about or do from listening to the two of you and reading your book, presumably? I would say the first thing, Joan, is we need you to lean in, not lean out, right? We need you to get engaged on this topic. It's not too technical for you. It's not too scary for you. And it is going to be embedded in every single aspect of your organization. So you can't avoid it. And to do what you were saying a few minutes ago, though, is to really look for the opportunities to be something different, right? We talk about in the book, turning this page on this crazy chapter of busyness, of burnout, of frantic, you know, aiming for efficiency, and to create a new chapter that is built on respect and relationships and storytelling and even, dare I say, love, (laughs) now that we could have the tech doing the parts tech ought to do. Um, Beth will give you the final word on that question. Um, Allison just outlined that so elegantly, and I think I'll come back to Metropolis and just that we need to remember that the mediator between the hands and the head and the brain being the tech, the hands being the human, is the heart. And that we need to hold the the vision of liberation, of spaciousness, of of being able to achieve the amazing outcomes that we can achieve, but without killing ourselves, along with the the careful, measured approach of uh, taking responsibility to do no harm. There's a um, chapter in my book. It's actually a chapter on like how to manage people. And it's called, I came to change the world, not do performance reviews. And here we are sitting around talking about a world where done thoughtfully and with a real sense of ethical responsibility that the perform, you know, that so many of these things that people, that people did come, you know, people do, people who are listening right now, they came to these jobs to change the world and using this technology with thought and care with intention will provide this kind of dividend of time that can give you the opportunity to get what Allison and Beth call this dividend of time, which will give you more opportunity to touch the work, to have relationships with the people that actually really sort of matter in the work and to um, to get a little closer to spending more of your time changing the world. So not a bad thing all in all. And I highly recommend this book because it is, the way that Beth and Allison have written this book is, is it's so accessible. It's so practical. It gives such clear guidance on how to approach this that I think you're just, you're going to be really, you're going to feel really lucky that you had the opportunity to read it and you're going to be, it's going to be dog-eared before you know it. So Beth and Allison, thank you very much. As always, I always learn so much talking to the two of you and inspired by the way that you think about what's possible. So Allison and Beth, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Joan. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.